I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Now summer's really here. Today, we bring you garden walks, wisteria, and wasps. Are they really all bad? All this and much more coming up in today's RHS Gardening Podcast. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the RHS's team of garden advisors. This June, the gardeners literally burst into life. The bindweed leading the charge, I'm sorry to say. The weather really has been our friend and our foe this spring and summer so far. We've had freezing temperatures, followed by rain, and then the warmest May since records have begun. What this means for all our garden plants is plenty of blooms and lushness. And predictions are that the good weather will continue. So it's perfect for nurseries preparing displays for Hampton Court and Tatton Park flower shows and perfect for visitors for an idyllic day out at the shows. Here at Wisley, new garden developments are progressing rapidly. We went to speak to the teams to see how some of the key projects, the Wisteria Walk and the Heather Garden, are coming along. I'm Emma Allen and I'm garden manager for Formal and Decorative Display. We are standing at the entrance to Wisteria Walk, which is our 75 metre long Wisteria Tunnel, which has been opened this year and uh, it's got lovely utopiary outside of it as well. We call it our topiary gallery. So there are 20 individual unique pieces of Taxus topiary. So there's ones that look like Helter Skelters. There's some that look like the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland. And we finally planted wisteria on the tunnel as well. So we've got two types of wisteria. We've got kimono, which is a paler form almost white uh, with a little kind of dark lilac eye and another form called raw purple which is very dark and, and is well scented too. The two different cultivars have been planted alternately as you go along the tunnel on either side and opposite each other they're different as well and that's so that if they're slightly out of sync with flowering times then in the future the entire structure will be covered with one or other flower but we're hoping that in the future they'll dangle through the tunnel and you'll be able to walk with these lovely long way seams of wisteria above your head. There's a break in the 75 metres of the tunnel and in the middle we've got a fabulous new water feature as well which utilises the old urn that we used to have in the centre that we used to plant up when we had the bedding scheme here and that's now got eight jets that go into it from outside of the pool and they cascade into there and then water cascades over the urn into the pool at the bottom. It's got a nice grey engineering brick to edge it and very small form of taxes around to soften the hard landscaping in the middle of the, the terrace 
as well. We've got quite a bit of planting space underneath the wisteria too, so by about July, August, there should be 75 metres on either side of the tunnel of cosmos flowerings. We're going to mix up several different cultivars, but they're all different shades of white and then different shades of pink. And we're going to mix it up all the way along. So we've got a bit of flower power while we're waiting for the wisteria to develop. And then after that, we'll do a succession of bulbs so we get a good display through the year as well. So you might have an early one before the wisteria flowers. So wisteria tends to flower in May and they usually last about two to three weeks. We're now in June, so obviously most of the flowers are finished. You can sometimes get a little second flush, but it won't be as impressive as the May display. Wisteria are very vigorous climbers, so they tend to get pruned twice a year. Once they get more established, in August you'll prune back the vegetative growth. They can put on a lot of that in one year. So you usually take that back to about six buds and then they get pruned again in about February and then you take that back again to another two to three buds and that helps control the size but helps them to start forming the flower buds as well. So if you've got a wisteria in a pot and you want to keep one in a container, it's a good idea, I think, to repot it every year or two, depending on, on how it's looking. If it's a big container and it's got room for the roots to grow, then maybe every two years check it. But yeah, it's, it's definitely worth re- repotting them and growing them on or giving them a good feed. We think the vegetative growth will cover the structure and probably reach the top by the end of this summer. I think somewhere between three to five years for it to start to look really amazing. But I think already with the yew topiary and with the underplanting that we're doing and just the structure itself, I can hear people already gasping when they come up and see it as a new feature at Wisley. So it's very exciting. My name is Mark Tusson. I'm the team leader for the Welcome and Riverside team. The bit we're stood in now is the new heather landscape. This was a new kind of area we wanted to develop using some of the old heathers that we had. So we propagated all, all the heathers that you see here. There's over a thousand different varieties, so you can imagine it's quite a big task. And we're now starting to plant them up. So we had about 24,000 plants in total, and we've got about 8,000 to go. So we're, we're nearing, nearing completion. So heathers have always kind of been stuck in this kind of 70s style of like island beds with dwarf conifers. And uh, we just want to do something completely different and really push the boundaries of it. So yeah, we've trialed something completely different and we've created a heather landscapes. There's lots of rolling hills and like undulations and we've really played about with the planting. So there's lots of big tall tree heathers in there. So we've really played about with some of our companion planting. We've used things such as bottle brush plants, which are these beautiful little red fluffy pom-pom things that look like a bottle brush. And then we've got these these yuccas, which are known as an edible root, but they they produce these big kind of crown forming plants and a a beautiful big flower spike throughout. So it it adds an element to the garden and it's great for bees actually as well. So because it's so sandy and there's actually quite a little bit of a microclimate there, we've, we've got the ideal space to try and play about with some of these plants and it has that Mediterranean feel about it. We're hoping to have a a seating area created and um, that'll kind of blend into the landscape and it'll be a really peaceful place to come and enjoy. Originally, this area used to just be a a cut through from A to B and and people just walk directly through. So we really wanted to slow the visitor down and take them on a journey through there. So there's, there's lots of paths that weave amongst one another and that kind of fits with the planting as well. So rather than traditional heather block planting that you'd see, we've drawn it out and created this ribboning effect throughout. 
So it, it really looks like this tapestry almost of, of heathers now. We're used to just seeing like our late summer flowering, September, and our, our winter flowering. But here there's so many different varieties that have different color foliage, deep oranges and deep reds. It's, it's something quite special actually. So, so we've got three different varieties in this area. They are the Ericas, Kalunas, and Debawasi, and that they all fall into this ericaceous category of, of heathers. So they're, they're really fun to play about with and, and create this longer flowering period from September running all the way through to kind of um, March, April time. Yeah, all, all the way through the year almost. We're, we're still planting. It's taken a lot of winter work. We've, we've put in a lot of irrigation. So it's got a new, new water system throughout and we are just starting to mulch with this bark mulch here and we're, we're slowly working our way down to, to the new cafe at the far end. The Stone Pine Cafe has just opened and it's a real draw for visitors down to, to this end of the garden. You know, there's the beautiful pine eatum that we've just walked through with all the big mature trees and then you get this beautiful tapestry work of heather landscape and, and a reward at the end. The heather landscape will really kind of take off and it'll probably be at its best during September, October. Yeah, this will really be a, a big tapestry of colour and yeah, September will be key and we'll hopefully have it all finished by then and uh, yeah, looking its best. The Wisteria Walk and the Heather Garden at RHS Wisley in Surrey. You can find links to details for opening times and special events at Wisley on our podcast page and that's rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Here you can also find links to all other items you hear about today, including upcoming events this summer. If you love gardening as much as I do, you'll no doubt be delighted to know that although Chelsea is just a distant memory now, there's still lots of flower show action to be had over this summer. First up, it's the Harlow Car Flower Show, a three-day floral extravaganza, which runs from the 22nd of June to the 24th of June and that's packed with specialist nurseries, gorgeous displays, expert advice and lots and lots more. Then we head south to Hampton Court Palace for the world's largest annual flower show and that runs from the 2nd to the 8th of July and that's bursting at the seams with glorious show gardens, great shopping, floral displays and, well, almost anything a gardener could wish for. And then it's on to Tatton Park in Cheshire from the 18th to the 22nd of July for our last major flower show of the year. This is a renowned showcase for new garden design talent as well as community gardening features and a floral marquee that is always spectacular. And again, links to further details are on our podcast page. The warm summer months are also the perfect time for exploring some of the 200 plus partner gardens around the UK. These gardens are affiliated to the RHS, which often offer free or discounted entry to RHS members. Here's Sean Thomas with her pick of some lovely walks to enjoy this summer. I'm Sean Thomas, Garden Visits Editor for the RHS. I work on the RHS website and the RHS magazine The Garden. Today I thought I'd talk about some partner gardens that you might like to visit in summer. 
Of course, there's a huge number of gardens to choose from in summer, but one lovely one, particularly if you're a rose lover, is the Dorothy Clive Garden in Shropshire. The Rose Walk, which is a relatively new part of the garden, brims with cottagey charm. There's a series of interconnected borders that is based around a, a spine of roses, and they're accompanied by Ceanothus, Salvia, Agapanthus and Buddleia, and it'll give you plenty of ideas if you're looking on ways to combine roses in your own garden. While you're there, you could also pop into the edible woodland, which combines common edibles with some more surprising edible plants, such as shuttlecock ferns and Nepalese raspberries. Another nice destination for rose lovers would be Millgate House in North Yorkshire. The owners of this award-winning town garden really love their roses, and so there's plenty of them to see. The centrepiece is a huge Rosa Helena, which scrambles up an iron climbing frame and it fills the garden with scent. A favourite of the owners is Rose Gertrude Jekyll, which has a delicious strong scent of old rose and clove and it repeat flowers all summer. For something a little bit different, you could head to a garden that has great collections of water lilies. One such garden is Burnby Hall Gardens and Museum in Yorkshire. It's home to a national collection of more than 100 cultivars of hardy water lilies and they bloom on the upper and lower lakes from around June to August time. You can follow the walkways around the lakes, enjoying the absolutely exquisite blooms floating on the surface and you can also hand feed the carp and roach that live in the lakes. Sheffield Park in East Sussex is best known for its autumn colour but it's actually another nice place to see water lilies as well. In summer, the colourful lilies carpet the two lakes above and below the waterfall. The waterfall in itself is actually of interest because it was built by the legendary James Pullman's son in the 1880s. Sometimes in summer, all you really want to do is have a lovely walk in a shady, tranquil setting, and it's the perfect way to spend a day. So a couple of gardens that would be good destinations to fit the bill are Sandringham, which has been called the best of the Royal Gardens, and you could happily spend a summer's afternoon exploring the sweeping glades, the woodland walks, and the lakes and streams. There's also many commemorative trees to look out for, as you would expect of a Royal Garden. In July, a particularly nice area is the Stream Walk, and it's packed with agapanthus and daylilies. A second great garden for a lovely summer's day walk would be Castle Hill in North Devon. The Palladian house there is surrounded by 50 acres of gardens, so there are plenty of opportunities to have a good walk. You can follow the track through the magnificent woodland gardens, and they're filled with a range of flowering shrubs leading right down to the river. If you're feeling energetic, you could climb up to the castle, which gives you panoramic views to Exmoor and beyond. You could also explore the historic parkland, which is studded with really interesting temples and follies and statues. Sean Thomas. But it's not all good news for gardeners in June. Each year, tunnelled out roots and maggots drive gardeners to despair as carrot flight wreaks havoc across the UK. For two years, the RHS Entomology Department have been investigating the best methods to stop these persistent pests from ruining crops. To fence or to cover? That is the question. Dr Anna Platoni explains her research. For the last two years, I've been working on a project looking at the control of carrot fly in gardens. 
carrot fly is a really important pest to gardeners and we hear it all of the time in our advisory work and in fact around 81% of all of the inquiries we get about carrot pests are carrot fly. In the advice that we've previously given we talk about barriers so barrier methods are basically building little fences around your carrot plots. The carrot fly is sort of ironically for a fly pretty poor at flying. The females find it hard to fly up and over barriers to reach the plots. So we wanted to test it scientifically and see what our results were. We planted out a lot of carrots, all surrounded by different types of barriers. And we tried 60 centimetre barriers because this is the height that's often recommended for gardeners to use. We tried 90 centimetre barriers, which is shown to be partly effective in agricultural systems and also can be bought by gardeners. And we also tried the 60 centimetre barriers with an overhang, so a slight lip on the top, which we thought might intercept the flies that were going up and over the barriers and might improve their performance. On top of these three things, we tried not protecting the carrots at all to see what the maximum level of damage would be in those plots if there were no fences, um, and also completely covered plots, which is another method that is used by gardeners to stop the flies physically reaching the carrots. The results that we've got after two years and harvesting over 6,000 carrots, all individually by hand, washing and weighing and measuring all of the damage on those carrots, we basically found that covering your carrot plots is definitely the best way to protect them from carrot fly. Fences were marginally successful in our first harvest of carrots in the second harvest the damage was a lot higher and at that point when the fly has had two generations in the year that's when more damage happened and the barriers were then less effective although covering is a always known to be a great way to protect your carrots there are some disadvantages it's quite hard work to construct the covers it makes plot maintenance more difficult and it can also increase the chances of fungal diseases we would have loved to be able to tell you that 60 centimeter barriers worked to make it a lot less effort for weeding and thinning but unfortunately we think covering is definitely the way to go we really only found advantages of greater yield and less damage for more information about this research, um, take a look at the RHS science blogs where there are photographs of the plots um, and a lot more detail about the results. Anna Platoni. And finally, if it's picnic season, it's wasp season. Much is talked about, about the vital importance of protecting bees, but few people feel very warmly towards their stripy, sting-happy cousin, the wasp. Wildlife gardener and writer Kate Bradbury, she begs to differ. Wasps do have a positive side, she argues. I think wasps are very much maligned in this country. They do get a bad press and I think it's undeserved. Most people only notice wasps in late summer and early autumn when they're perhaps eating outside and the wasps come and interfere, try to get on their food, try to drink their fizzy drinks or get in their jam sandwiches. They see wasps as a nuisance and they don't see the point of the wasps. Wasps are incredibly beneficial to gardens and gardeners. If we didn't have wasps, our gardens would be overrun with leaf munchers. I grow nasturtium specifically to use as a sacrificial crop to transfer small and large white caterpillars from my cabbages because they eat nasturtiums as well as members of the brassica family. I have spent many a summer's afternoon watching wasps take 
every single small and large white caterpillar off my nasturtiums. One afternoon I was transferring caterpillars onto my nasturtiums and three or four common wasps took the caterpillars virtually out of my hands. If you imagine a, a wasp colony, that's 40,000 wasps going out in one or two gardens and taking every single caterpillar. The way the wasp life cycle works is that much like a honeybee, the queen wasp emerges from hibernation in spring, she sets up a nest, she lays eggs which become workers. As soon as she has a good number of workers in the nest, then she stays in the nest and continues to lay eggs while the workers go out and get food for the grubs wasps are carnivorous so instead of coming back with pollen and nectar for the grubs they come back with caterpillars and aphids for the grubs so the worker brings a caterpillar to the babies in the nest the wasp grubs secrete a sugary solution which is the worker's reward which the wasp worker drinks so it's in the best interest for the wasp worker to bring its sibling a caterpillar or aphid what happens towards the end of the summer is that the queen slows down and then eventually stops laying eggs. So they have to stop going and getting the caterpillars and the aphids because there's no grubs to feed and therefore there's no sugary reward for them. What happens in autumn? All the fruit starts to ripen. So wasps can be a nuisance on fruit trees. They can eat your plums. They can bore into your apples and pears. They can irritate you at, at picnics. And it's because they need sugar. At the moment, I've got a little jar of jam, which I've left out for wasps. So far, it's been eaten by a squirrel. But that's all you know, part of the myriad of, of, of wildlife in my garden. And I'm very happy to have it. Wasps do this incredible service. And I think we should all be nice to wasps. Kate Bradbury. Well, that's all we have time for today. Until the next time, from the podcast team and me, Jenny Bowden, goodbye and enjoy the sun. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Crest robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Crest robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how 
with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.